0: Hi, and welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm John Latiri. This week, I sit down with author and urbanist Bruce Katz to discuss a policy called Opportunity Zones, designed to drive private investment into struggling areas of the country. I hope you enjoy the episode. Bruce Katz, thanks for coming on The Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. So, Bruce, you're a legendary urbanist and and thinker about cities. So, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I want to start with what you've done since leaving Brookings. You founded the Metropolitan Studies Program, which is the gold standard for DC think tanks in terms of thinking about cities and the, and the role of cities in our economy and metropolitan economies more broadly. Talk about what you've been doing since then.
1: Well, in 2017, I wrote a book called The New Localism, How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism with my close friend, Jeremy Nowak. So we drunk our own Kool-Aid, <laughs> essentially. And we decided to start a company and also a finance lab at Drexel University. And so, Jeremy and I had grand plans for, I suppose, world urban domination. Jeremy passed away, as you know, in July of 2018. The book came out in January. So, a lot of what I've been doing has been to really further this notion that problem solving, economy shaping, place making, talent preparing is all bottom up now. It's all driven by cities, by networks interdisciplinary and opportunity zones really have become a manifestation of the new localism. So, you know, my post Brookings world was was really driven by the desire to work with Jeremy frankly and to get stuff done and now I continue to carry on that work.
0: You mentioned opportunity zones. You have been among the very most engaged people, thinkers, helpers in that process of this this nascent marketplace and this nascent effort for communities to actually figure out what to do with this tool and i don't think there's anyone who has a better sense of the scope of what different communities are doing than than you. What are you seeing around the country? What 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 are the kind of things that you personally are doing to help cities? Think this through.
1: Well, i think opportunity zones first and foremost is a window on the economic potential and the starting point of literally thousands of communities in the united states. So, the literal interpretation of opportunity zones is go find a tax lawyer or an accountant or a wealth manager and go to town. I mean, I've mostly looked at the zones in particular city from an urbanist perspective, a central business district or a hospital district or an innovation district or a low-income neighborhood that might have been the target of urban renewal or freeway expansion or a port or an airport. So in a way, Opportunity Zones has given us the ability to disaggregate and deconstruct our cities and then to build them back up with the kinds of investments and projects and entrepreneurship growth that makes sense for that place. So, I am absolutely fascinated by this because it's having been chief of staff at HUD for Henry Cisneros, his view of a good day was we would go out and kick tires, right? Don't stay in the office. Go out and see the work that you're doing. So, I've been to hundreds of these zones with Ross Baird, with Jeremy Nowak, with a whole new group of entrepreneurs, developers, investors, churches, HBCUs, professionals. And I think it's enabling us to reimagine the economic possibilities of different places and the outcomes that those possibilities could have for the people living there. Now, that's not how it's been interpreted, because I think it's been looked at literally this tax incentive and this tax tool. And you know what kind of returns are people going to make on these kind of projects. But I've been really, from a starting point perspective, trying to understand what's the possibility.
0: And then this is just part of the, the
1: capital stack. This is just one more incentive to, to put to task.
0: It's an organizing function, right? And that, that's what you're trying to harness. One of the things you've done is to help cities literally take stock of what they have through what are called the city prospectuses. Right. So you've, you've been helping to lead the charge on that. And I think now close to 50 cities have Actually, produced one in the context of opportunity zones. You could imagine, obviously, that happening totally absent of a policy like opportunity Absolutely. zones. Absolutely, and I think that's the point: is that this is the kind of best practice that should be engaged in. But why is that important? Why is it important for?
1: Well, them? first of all, you know, I become obsessed with things, and then I never stop being obsessed with them. So I was obsessed with investment perspectives ten years ago. I thought this had to be a new way for cities because we're beginning to see, you know, the support market dynamics support the revival of our cities. And this is something I've been working on since the 80s, right? Or even the 70s, you know, Ford to New York dropped dead. Remember that headline? So, I thought investment prospectuses, and Jeremy was really my co-conspirator on this, was going to be a way for cities to use evidence and data to unveil their assets and advantages, some of them spatial, some of them sectoral, some of them related to talent, and then put forward sort of a new vision of what sustainable and inclusive development and growth could look like. And then opportunity zones rolled around. And this became like the catalytic action forcing event where instead of just being a nice thing to do, it was an urgent thing to do. Because if you have 8,762 zones and you're trying to attract investments, you better be able to articulate why the hell would anyone invest in you? So, we have like a 1.0 version. And my hope, just not frankly for the United States, but globally, is that this could become a ubiquitous tool and platform for both cities and parts of cities to articulate their future.
0: What are the kind of things that have surprised you in in that as you've you've watched cities go through that process? And and I'll, I'll maybe prompt you with one thing that surprised me a little bit, which is how often we hear from mayors and governors, we didn't know how much we had, we being the public sector controlled in our own communities which is another way of saying these assets have been really liabilities. They haven't been assets at all. They've been lying fallow. They've been vacant. In many cases, the the cities and states don't even know what they have. And so, they can't possibly be put to productive use unless there's accountability behind that. So, that's one thing that I've heard anecdotally quite a bit is as a result of the prospectus effort or just a result of knowing about opportunity zones, period, it's forced communities to take stock of what do we actually control that we could be leveraging in a more productive way. Number one is that have you been hearing that as well? And what are the other kinds of things that have surprised you or that you've seen have surprised the communities as they've gone through this process?
1: So an investment prospectus is is not a report. It's an organizing tool. So I think there's misinterpretation initially of, okay, we just need to run the data. And then out of the computer, we'll spit out, here's the answer, right? Actually, Larry Jacob from the Kauffman Foundation said something to me going back a year, which really has stuck with me. He said, this is an effort to get a consensus on reality across public, private, civic, university, community, labor, a whole group of stakeholders in cities that for the most part, don't share the same view about their city in general or particular parts of their city in specific. So what really this has precipitated is a way for a bunch of different stakeholders to come together, the grass tops, the grass stems, and the grass roots really, and see, do we share the same understanding of the assets of this place? And therefore, do we share the same vision for what we could be? And what it's really begun to do, because in any given city, you might have five zones or 10 zones or 20 zones, it's enabled people to see the connection between different parts of the city, which generally have these artificial borders. You know, you'll go from a downtown. I was in Greensboro the other day, downtown Greensboro. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. So you could walk to UNCG, or you could walk to North Carolina A&T, which is the largest HBCU, Stark Black College University in the country. But because of mental blinders, it was all seen. All these are just different neighborhoods. I mean, they really have nothing to do with each other. Actually, Opportunity Zones have shown their connectivity. And if you're able to, to leverage the full integration of these different places with their different assets, you're in a two plus two equal five world. You change the math on transformative inclusive growth. So there's a lot of technical, you know, from an urbanist perspective, you know, what assets does the city own and where are those assets located and how can they be disposed of in a more beneficial way. But the starting point of this is an organizing observation. This is enabling cities to get organized around their economy across different geographies and across different sectors. Who should lead that effort? Is that a mayor's job? My view is anyone who has a pulse should lead the effort. I mean, you know, we're the United States. We're not Britain. You know, we're not a system that runs from the center. Whether you're in a city level or whether you're at the national level, we're highly distributed. This is to Tocqueville, America, right? So anyone can lead the effort really who has stature and trust. Trust is really the biggest, most important capital in cities today. It's not market capital, it's trust. And so if the mayor has that trust, absolutely, the mayor's the obvious individual or position to lead this. But in other cities, it's been the chamber. If it's inclusive focused, it's been philanthropy, it's been universities, hospitals or a combination of all of that. It's the United States. We're gonna have varied leadership in varied places. And at the end of the day, that in and of itself, because it's not prescriptive, it's not predicted, is gonna yield different kind of results.
0: What are the places that are getting it right so far? With the caveat that super early, these are long-term processes that take a long time to fully reveal themselves, but who's on the right path?
1: Well. I look at Erie, Pennsylvania as, as like the poster child for mm. this because they were an early adapter of the investment prospectus. Initially, we chose with Accelerator for America and Mayor Garcetti. And Mayor Garcetti, Rick Jacobs, and Accelerator deserve an enormous amount of credit because they embraced the new localism before the book was even out. They saw the need for an intermediary that could capture, codify, spread innovation quickly. So they, they're the ones who got Jeremy and I going to do this investment prospectus, we chose three cities initially, South Bend, Louisville, and Oklahoma City, and then Stockton and Erie raised their hands and say, hey, we want in. (laughs) So what's different about Erie is that prior to Opportunity Zones, Erie was beginning to come together around their universities and their companies and philanthropies and the government around a big shock the market move in the downtown of Erie. It's a gorgeous downtown. If you've ever been there, you've got the lake, you've got the bay, you've got State Street, and you've got this post Civil War downtown, which urbanists would die for—walkable, livable, bikeable—you know, whatever else people talk about these days. What happened is they created this downtown development corporation with patient capital from individuals, Erie Insurance, philanthropies, and others, and so they were ready for opportunity zones. They were, and they picked well. They picked eight zones all around the greater downtown because they were using patient money that wasn't expecting any return to acquire strategic properties, Opportunity Zones then provided the market equity so those properties could be renovated and ultimately populated with small business and residential. So, Erie has organized itself to cross sectors. They're on the same page. You talk to one person in Erie, you talk to another from different sectors, they'll pretty much say the same thing, which is a sign of success, not Stepford Wives. Right? <laughs> so. Obviously, a lot of other places, Birmingham, Kansas City, Dayton, Louisville, Oklahoma City, there's others, but Erie is just this like full in all sectors. This is our time. This is our moment. It's
0: also the, I think from a 30,000 foot perspective, the least likely of the ones you just mentioned. But I think people are always surprised when, when I say Erie's actually the yeah. leader of the pack nationally in this effort, because it's just so counter to the archetypal post-industrial, you know, legacy city mentality that people have about that part of the country or those types of communities. And you're right. I mean, we were in Erie a couple of weeks ago for, for an event that they did. And exactly as you said, it didn't matter who you spoke with. Church leaders, community foundation head, Fortune 500 company, Downtown Development Corp., everyone was on the same page. And apparently, because I wasn't spending time in Erie 10 years ago, apparently that's a big change, Massive from where, change from where they had been. And so what I love so much about that is that as a policy, people expect too much heavy lifting out of federal policy just in general. A policy like Opportunity Zones at its best is a tool and an organizing principle. But if you don't match that with a local effort like what you're talking about, you're going to get very limited utility out of it. And Erie is showing how from that bottom up, better organizing and collaborating can lead to when it's paired with the kind of tool that The federal government's providing here can really lead to quicker results and more transformative results than most people would have anticipated.
1: Well, you know, markets are created because of trust and confidence. You know, we we all focus on capital, whether it's capital raining down like mana from heaven from the federal government, or whether it's capital coming from local investors. You know, from an outset, when I first went to Erie, maybe like 2013, 2014, I was struck by a very small, compact, beautiful downtown if you've ever been to Lake Erie, it's gorgeous. I mean, the quality of life there, it's like a big secret. No one one wants anyone else to know. But around the downtown, which is relatively small and compact, is UPMC, Harnett, Harnett, a massive health complex, Gannon University, and Erie Insurance. So in a way, Erie is a proxy for many American Mm. cities, particularly small and medium-sized cities, is we tended to juxtapose and concentrate and co-locate a lot of these anchor institutions right either in or by the downtown. Voila. I mean, this is a
0: platform for for growth and right. development. And yet over decades, depopulation, job right. loss, business closure, massive vacancy in the down, that beautiful downtown, hyper vacancy in Hi. huge swaths. And so again, for the reason that you see this motif playing out in so many different places, if it can work in a place like Erie, you can apply that model in dozens of places who have those same core ingredients, but also the same kind of directional challenges that Erie's faced.
1: The ingredients, this juxtaposition of assets and concentrated areas is, is ubiquitous in the United States. It's very different in Europe, frankly, where a lot of their universities were put out in the suburbs. So, we have them right smack, mm-hmm. particularly the private universities, right smack on the downtowns or right by the downtowns. And the really differentiated issue here is leadership and multi-sector network leadership, formal or informal. When we wrote The New Localism, you know, the poster child in that book was Indianapolis, which in 1970, Kurt Vonnegut, who had grown up in Indianapolis said, this is a city where you played miniature golf for 364 days and on the last day you went to the speedway. There was literally nothing going on in Indianapolis and they started a 40-year effort Multi-sector universities and Lilly and companies and the government to restore the core and give a sense of place and
0: community and potential. And now it's one of the true outliers in that in that region. For, oh my lord! Uh, Incredible place. Well, another thing you you mentioned leadership. One of the common threads that runs throughout all the cities you mentioned: very dynamic mayors. I mean, yeah, Stockton, absolutely. Dayton, yep. Louisville. Th- these are among the nation's very best, most engaged, most aggressive. And so, no surprise then early adopters in the context we're talking about here. One thing I think that also gets lost, certainly in the national commentary around a policy like opportunity zones is how much beneath the federal layer of policy is required to make it successful. But the flip side of that is how many tools beneath the federal layer mm-hmm. exist to shape a policy like opportunity zones. You are on the front lines of that question as well. So what what are the kind of things in the toolkit, and let's stick with mayors maybe as, as just a starting point here. should be used and can be used, and in some cases now already are being used in in tandem with Opportunity Zones to help either shape directionally what kind of challenges are being tackled first, or to prevent and provide guardrails that prevent some unintended consequences that always can arise from a policy like this.
1: Well, I think the structural shift, and then we can get to the tools, is the difference between a vertical hierarchical world and a horizontal world. So, in the federal government, and I was chief of staff at HUD. And I'm a glutton for punishment, so I actually went back under the Obama administration for a period of time. It's a vertical world. We have silos and stovepipes, you know, and so, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You go to HUD, well, here's what we got. You go to DOT, Department of Transportation, here's what we have. If we go to Environmental Protection Agency, so it's, it's very circumscribed, very prescriptive all around these themes, housing, transportation environment, education, labor. At the local level, all this stuff is completely integrated and connected. Welcome to the real world. So, the tools that you have at the local level is first of all, being able to see the connection between things. You know, a city is a system and it prospers when it acts like an entrepreneur, right? And so, there are multiple tools at the local level. There's data, and evidence, so you know actually what your assets are, both economic and physical. There's land. An enormous amount of land is owned either by the city or quasi-public aspects of the city, the port authority, the airport authority, redevelopment authority, convention center authority, stadia authority. We say we don't like government. We got lots of government. Labor, talent, skills, not just in the universities, but really in these community colleges and specialized high schools, which can populate a good portion of a STEM-driven economy. Capital, capital is in many parts of the country, whether it's equity, whether it's debt, whether it's subsidy, it exists. It just has to be integrated and braided around particular projects. So, from the perspective of growing the economy writ large and urban, an inclusive urban economy writ small, most of the tools are actually at the local level land use, zoning, et cetera, et cetera. And so, to some extent, since the end of the Second World War, we've infantilized cities to think that you have to look to Washington for solutions. And because Washington is so siloed and stovepiped, we've tended to have cities almost mimic the way the national government is organized. Well, it's a housing problem, we just have to get a HUD grant. That's not the way the rest of the world works, actually. In most parts of the world, housing is local and education is national. In the U.S., education is local and housing has been nationalized. So I think we're beginning to learn how much power and how much resources and how much decision-making is quintessentially local. And if you can pull all those together in the service of some clear vision and direction and then actual investable projects that are community enhancing, that's the big result. I want to talk about the
0: legacy of previous policies right. that you see in these communities around around the country as, as you go visit opportunity zones. One thing you and I have talked about is the physical legacy of what was called urban renewal programs and efforts in cities that really physically divided them and carved them up. And it's the same story repeated city after city after city. That plus redlining and the legacy of disinvestment in certain neighborhoods, it's amazing to me how consistently Opportunity Zones maps onto because what it says is those areas that governors designated as their struggling communities are struggling in part because of a direct tie back into policies that damaged them and set them back from the rest of the pack. And so there's a very aspirational and hopeful way to look at this, which is this is a corrective opportunity to help knit back together communities that were physically in, and in a capital context and, and a business context excluded and separated from, from the rest of their broader communities. I want you to talk about that because you're that is, I know, top of mind for you as you go from community to community. And is there any kind of special, what's the playbook there? there kind of, what kind of efforts are you seeing to specifically address those types of legacies using this new tool?
1: Well, it's really quite remarkable to go around the United States and uh, having read The Color of Law and, and many of these great academic sort of reviews of urban renewal to see the devastation that was done after the Second World War in city after city after city we literally ripped out whole downtowns in the US. And then since that wasn't enough, we decided to ring the downtowns with super highways. And what that did was ultimately set up a very stark, almost impenetrable color line
0: in our cities. I don't want to skip past the why. Why did they do that? Because they thought they were doing something that was smart.
1: Well, I think it was a combinations of things. I think they were really post-war trying to imagine the city of the future, right? I am Pei went in, in Oklahoma City, who I.M. Pei passed away earlier this year, and put together the Oklahoma City plan. So, all this organic, small, the Jane Jacobs kind of streetscape that existed in all of our cities, frankly, mm-hmm. before the war. And these old, just classic historic hotels and buildings and so forth, that was seen as the old. I mean, America is the place of the new. So we were going to literally start over again, a do-over, right? And a few places resisted this, either because they were corrupt or incapable, or because they had this incredible, like in Providence, you know, they just had an incredible historic stock that they just did not want to blow away. but. City after city after city literally tore down, ripped apart their downtowns, insult to injury, then ringed them with new freeways, and the color line became cemented. Occasionally, what happened is urban renewal was used to move people out and make way for health districts. So, if you go to Oklahoma City again, or in Houston, or Chicago, vast medical districts were built, or university districts were built and those were enabled by urban renewal which allowed all the sort of small single family stock to be moved. So this is what we inherit. It's like present history essentially. You know, it's not some it's not a vestige of the past. It's set the table for what we do now. I actually think it creates enormous possibilities because of urban renewal. And you know, it was great about urban renewal in most cities they had this brilliant plan for what the city would look like in the 21st century, right? And of course, all they did was tear stuff down. They never actually built the plan. So what you now have is large amounts of land, which is owned by the public, or these redevelopment authorities that came into being in the 1950s. And you have this new pension and demand from people for places where you could live, work, and play, and for companies where you can get sort of an innovation ecosystem and and match different disciplines in the service of product innovation and process innovation. So there's this unbelievable demand to bring back the cores of our cities, which requires us to be thoughtful about how to build this in 21st century ways, and then break down these artificial walls between downtowns and adjoining neighborhoods, which are separated by race, class, and ethnicity. So in a way, this has the ability, I don't want to be delusional about this, but it has this ability for an integrated, inclusive approach. To repair the mistakes, the mistakes that were done 60,
0: 70 years ago. One of the features of our post Great Recession economy is a really rapid concentration of economic power and clustering and activity in a relatively small handful of places. So when you look at the national total of job creation, of new business formation, GDP, even payroll gains since the since the recession ended you're looking at five, six, seven metros that are really carrying an enormous amount of the national total. So the aggregate, you can look one way, but when you disaggregate it, you see just how top heavy. Do you see that as an inevitability that we're gonna be living with for a long time? Or do you see the pendulum swinging back?
1: I think the pendulum is swinging back. I think the concentration of growth in a small number of metropolitan areas is part of the financialization of the economy. And the financialization of the economy has put an enormous amount of power in the hands of a very small number of people, whether they're private equity companies or wealth management firms or pensions, or the people who manage these funds, who to some extent have a very narrow view of growth and a very narrow view of innovation, and they just keep doing the same thing. Well, it must be Silicon Valley. It must be Boston. It must be, you, you know, fill in the blank. What's really different about the United States than many other countries is how deep our bench is. You know, we have advanced research universities, we have energy labs, we have military research all over the United States. And that creates a platform for advanced industry and company formation and growth, and ultimately more broad prosperity. But it's, it's hidden because of this financialization that has consistently just poured more capital into a few number of places. About ten years ago, I noticed an interesting physical dynamic in U.S. cities and global cities: the growth of innovation districts around advanced research universities. So I, you know, naively started making my way around various, you know, holders of capital in Wall Street and you know, in New York more broadly, and said, "Hey, have you been to Pittsburgh lately? Have you been to St. Louis? Um, and have you been to Winston-Salem? Have you seen these new innovation hubs?" This strikes me as where investment capital needs to go. And I was just usually shown the door. I think what opportunity zones are helping unveil is both the market potential of these places, but it's unveiling a level of local wealth that has given over management of their wealth to these financial institutions. And they now want to see a portion of that wealth reinvested in their places to get that, you know, double bottom line or triple bottom line. Make money, and really help put the place where you made your money
0: back on track. I had somebody from a a very large financial institution tell me, right before the bill, right before Opportunity Zones became law, that as they were surveying millennial clients who numerically are their largest client base now, not asset wise yet, but numerically. So they're trying to predict where is this base of clients going to be in five, 10 years? What do they want? How do we anticipate that with products? And when they synthesize the results, one of the very top things they we're hearing was we want not impact investment products as traditionally understood, but products that provide impact that can be understood in narrative form and tied to places that they care about. This person said, we don't have products like that. It exposed a gap in what we offer to our clients. And you think about how Opportunity Zones maps into that challenge, it's it's pretty profound. But you have done some really interesting writing and thinking about this question of local wealth. And the dynamic that you've described is one of in proximity to a lot of very struggling areas and in, in cities that have struggled, you have enormous wealth, but that wealth is often being managed, almost always being managed from New York or some uh, some great distance from the community itself by people who have no incentive and no accountability to care about the community from which it originates. And so that disconnect, it's easy to overlook that, but it's, it's, it's hard to overstate how profound that is. That if, if there was a demand from the client at scale, to create products to invest in their communities, and that, that was part of the performance, the way that they were evaluated as wealth managers, that alone would be a seismic shift. I think this for
1: me is the biggest insight as to what has happened in the US over the past 40 years. The biggest export that any American city or metropolis has is their own capital. You know, Ross Baird and I have written a lot about this recently. So you go into any given city, high net worth individuals philanthropies with endowments universities with endowments pension funds which obviously in some places have not been managed very well but still large amounts of capital major philanthropies right exactly and you say okay where are you investing on the market side not on the giving side right which is a relatively small portion of the corpus where are you investing well we have it, a manager who you know who basically oversees this and basically they're investing either you know in these small number of metropolitan areas on the coasts or occasionally in Austin in the United States or outside the United States and so in many ways they're not serving their own institutions or the people they represent i mean i was with a, a state treasurer a couple weeks ago he has a pension fund of maybe about 8 to 10 billion dollars i think he only has like four or five people who actually are working on managing that fund most of it is just outsourced to a New York firm that then basically does what it always does it takes the hard earned pension funds of Rhode Islanders and other states and moves it somewhere else so we have to change we have to structurally change capital flows in the United States because the market investments are there the returns are there and again we have this incredible platform and infrastructure around advanced research, mature companies, startups, scale-ups, incubators, accelerators, angel seed. I mean, you name it, we have it. But this large amount of investment capital is going to a relatively small number of places just because it's path dependent. So, this can be broken. It doesn't need a law. It needs a norm. That's right. It needs a model. And then one place will basically be at the vanguard of it, like Erie Insurance is with its opportunity fund in Erie. And then... Two or three other places will follow, and then suddenly, it'll just spread like wildfire.
0: This is something that Steve Case, the entrepreneur and investor, talks about a lot with his Rise of the Rest tour and his fund that is aimed at investing in the middle of the country. And it's amazing to see, and having been on a, a number of those tours, it's amazing to see how communities respond when somebody from the outside with that kind of stature says, you can do this too, and stop benchmarking against San Francisco or Silicon Valley. What's the best version of what you guys have here? And how do you make that pitch? You know, and so redirecting the herd because I think people underestimate how investors really do—they they they move in a herd, like like all of us. There's there's path dependency, there's blinders, there's safety in number, kind of seeking that capital follows. So some of those early market signals have to come from local wealth, right, to to de-risk it for outside wealth and to to organize it. And that's exactly what you see in Erie with a Fortune 500 company investing from its balance sheet into its own community in a way that reflects, by the way, I think what a lot of us have said for a long time, wouldn't it be great if large companies thought about their commitment to place, not just from CSR or philanthropic, the two pocket problem in a way that you and Ross have, have written about, which I, I, want, I want you to talk about in a moment. But one of the most exciting things about Erie is that, that you have a major employer, a Fortune 500 company saying, we're citizens here and we want to see this community thrive because that's our employee base, that's our customer base, that's the name Erie if you had that model moving at scale, that alone would be transformative. And it would significantly de-risk the proposition of reinvesting in these communities.
1: You know, for a place, for a company like Erie Insurance, their investments are a market proposition. They're trying to attract and retain talent. That's what fuels right. great companies. Right. If all you did was read, you know, what the national media has written about Erie, no one would go to Erie. Exactly. And <laughs> no one would stay. So, a, they have to attract and retain talent. And their employee base, like the employee base in many of these companies, is highly motivated mm-hmm. to invest back in their own place and to make it a greater community. They own real estate around these downtowns or other core areas. They make procurement decisions about what to buy from various vendors, which could be concentrated and used as leverage. So. Every single stakeholder in a city is beginning to understand, hey, wait a second. As a collective, we have enormous amount of power. And as individual institutions, whether it's our capital, whether it's our procurement, whether it's our employee base, we also have enormous power. That's the new localism, right? Now, we're in, a, we're in early stages of formalizing this and moving to a routine because in the end of the day, if this is going to have Dramatic transformative effect. It has to be routinized. It just can't be, well, Erie did something and then right. some other place did something else. You have to have a way of making this
0: a market phenomenon. Will you talk a little bit more about this two pocket problem that you and Ross have written about?
1: Yeah. So, all credit to Ross about this and Ross Baird, you know, head of uh, Village Capital, now Blueprint Local, began to observe like an early version of this sort of wealth distortion where, let's say, a philanthropy is investing 95% of its corpus in the market through professional managers, and then using 5% of its corpus on an annual basis to give, okay, whatever that might mean in one one place or another. The 95% that's being invested is usually invested out of the city in which the philanthropy was made, out of the city in which the wealth was generated. And a lot of times in activities which run completely counter to what the philanthropy says it stands for. So, we have a one-pocket, two-pocket problem. You know, philanthropies and others basically will take a very small portion of their capital and invest it philanthropically. And then the other portion, the second pocket is used to invest in the market. If we could fuse all this, like Erie Insurance has done in many respects, they're making a patient capital investment in Erie Downtown Development Corporation. They've created an opportunity fund. That's on the market equity side. They give philanthropically like major corporations do in their their places. And then multiple, multiple other kinds of investments they make. One pocket is not one instrument. It's one vision of what investments can lead to in a particular place, which can then have multiple, very different kinds of investments.
0: It's interesting to think about the potential role for philanthropy here and just how much of a disconnect I think there's been so far just to stay with opportunity zones. This is an area where it's an issue where you have a very deep seated challenge that is going to take more than just capital, but it's going to take a lot of capital to overcome. And when you're talking about infill and reinvestment and dealing with blight and vacancy and funding businesses that come into these communities, capital is not the only solution, but it's a lifeblood kind of issue. And even with an incentive, A lot of these areas are still perceived as incredibly high risk and folks are not just thinking about returns, they're thinking about the downside. How do I protect my downside? And so you see in very small increments, some philanthropies have stepped up to provide loss guarantees and a backstop so that fund managers can go out there and say, I'm going to try something that's a high degree of difficulty, but I'm very confident it's going to be successful. If I'm not successful, you're covered on the losses because of concessionary capital from philanthropy. But that's in the tens of millions scale across a national policy where this this scale of the challenge that we've allowed to accumulate over decades is in the hundreds of billions. And so we're nowhere close to to matching that. Have you been surprised that philanthropy has been relatively slow to step into that void? I am quite surprised. I've, I've written a paper for the Knight Foundation on
1: seven things philanthropies can do. Brian Murray, the head of Shift Capital, who's one of the most innovative practitioners in the country right now, has written a, a, a similar piece. "There are so many things that philanthropy can do to establish an infrastructure for making sure opportunity zones have their highest potential. And again, this is an incentive, not a program, right So it requires deep investment in data analytics, practice by different stakeholders in a given city. I mean, we're literally creating a different system, what Ross and I call a system of community wealth rather than community development. So, the federal government's not going to do this. They're just writing the rules. This is about creating norms and models. Philanthropy has to step in and do this. Up to now, is it reputational risk? Is, Is it a Trump era program? Is it because they were path dependent? Oh, we already knew what we were doing. Why are you asking us to do this? It could be any number of things. Bottom line, at a time when we really need patient investment in creating the next system, literally the next system from the bottom up, they're on a frolic and detour for the most part. I think as we begin to see deals and transactions and impact and transformation, and we begin to see these local foundations mostly begin to invest in new and different ways, then perhaps they'll come to the table. But my view, we're in a structural transition in the United States. This is not about opportunity zones. This is about a shift from a top-down to a bottom-up system. And a bottom-up system needs a radically different kind set of investments to work. We're not there yet.
0: Yeah. And there's I always don't. an immune reaction oh, yeah. to that type of shift. Right? Oh, yeah. So, that, that's in some ways to be expected. But I, I can't help but think about the economy of scale that gets created overnight, if the philanthropic sector said, instead of 5%, we're going to 50% and we're tapping into that 95% of our endowment, that, that's just an accumulation process and demanding that financial managers create products that allow them to, to invest in communities in a mission-aligned way at scale, right? And you can see how that alignment would fuel a lot of what you're talking about.
1: And again, the shift from community development to community wealth, it's a clever play on words, I suppose, but it's a fundamental paradigmatic shift For the last 40 years, maybe even more, what the U.S. has focused on primarily to revitalize neighborhoods, particularly those neighborhoods impacted by urban renewal and freeway expansion, is invest in low-income rental housing. Housing was seen as the way to regenerate a community. Not skills, not minority-owned businesses, housing. And
0: And it turns out when you invest in just housing and not businesses and skills, you get a ghettoization. Well, you
1: get a concentration effect that William Julius Wilson wrote about in the late 80s. When we did public housing transformation under Clinton, it was very much a response to what Wilson was writing about, about the hyper concentration of the very poor in these inner city neighborhoods. The shift to community wealth requires us to look very sharply at in a given city, what portion of the businesses are owned by black, brown, Etc. minorities. In Philadelphia, where I now do work with Drexel, 40% of the population of the city of Philadelphia is black. Only 2.5% of the businesses are owned by black African Americans, right? We don't have a system here for identifying, nurturing, supporting, mentoring, capitalizing minority-owned business. That's what Opportunity Zones have revealed. My Lord, is that a place for philanthropy to play.
0: Absolutely. Well, it strikes me that the racial wealth gap is a reflection and the other side of the same coin as the place wealth gap, right? These, These two things work in tandem. And that is so much at the heart of this conversation about wealth building that you've, again, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about. So we talked earlier about urban renewal and redlining, and those were things that had the effect of deeply disadvantaging, often, almost always, minority families and the wealth building opportunities that they had over time. If you just look at the obvious fact that most people, their biggest asset is their home. Absolutely. If you've devalued the property values and minority neighborhoods intentionally and, and th- as a side effect of urban renewal, then that's going to have generational effects. And we are living with those generational effects and they're profound. And it's worth noting that all the progress that had been made prior to the recession has been completely wiped away by the recession and the and the uneven recovery. So that remains a profound challenge, even in the record long expansion that we're living in and in spite of it, right? Because it's still not reaching a lot of these communities. So you've thought a lot about community wealth building. Again, you're, you're playing with terms to try to get folks to reorient around what the right vision and goal should be. But what does the playbook actually look like? How, how do we start to chip away at this?
1: Well, the first thing I think we need to focus on is stopping what is a flow of parasitic capital into these neighborhoods. Because I have to say, the terminology we use around opportunity zones is trying to direct capital to areas of disinvestment. Well, when I go around these places. What I actually see is investment, but it's an investment of a particular kind. And it just repeats itself again, and again, and again. The dollar stores.
0: Um, Did you see that quote from the... I think it was the CEO of Dollar General. He said, the economy keeps producing our core customer, uh-huh. more, more of our core customer. Very... They're
1: the bottom of the, feed, the feeding chain. I mean, it's it's not as if there's no capital in these places. On the public side, there's a lot of social service capital. And on the private side, it's this capital around big box or predatory activity, which is still with us. You know, the crack up in 07, 08 was driven by fraudulent underwriting and shoddy behavior, right? What's happened since the recession is a lot of investors, this is a new slumlord economy, have moved into these neighborhoods, purchased properties, have done really nothing to maintain them or, you know, upgrade them. And then there's this other capital coming in for for big box retail. So we have to rewind all this. So first thing, we have to stop certain things, get a very clear understanding of what is flowing into these neighborhoods. And then we have to basically start back by building an infrastructure around skills building, because clearly we're not producing out of our K through 12 or even many of our community colleges, people with the skills and capacities and competencies to participate in the economy. Business growing, entrepreneurial dynamism. We need the same ecosystem, the same intricate ecosystem for minority-owned business that we have for innovative companies, quote unquote, right? That same ecosystem of universities and companies and startup scale-up seed, et cetera, et cetera, incubators, accelerators. We need that to grow minority-owned business. And then home ownership again, because ultimately if you if you work on skills, if you work on businesses, it's going to enable people to get a piece of the american dream so to speak but we have a completely broken system right now that's what opportunity zones have revealed they've revealed enormous potential for investment in a system that isn't really focused on building wealth it's mostly built on extracting wealth and so you know at times you can sound crazy radical in these conversations as you go around the country because you know Ross myself you others it's almost like we've been on this journey You know, to Tocqueville, circa 2019, to see what what really is going on out here. It's a journalistic kind of experience, and I think what we've unveiled is on one side this unbelievable hidden potential that has been under leveraged and under recognized. Number one, and number two, the lack of a system to basically do this over and over again, just not in a one-off knockoff.
0: Yeah, so I'm very skeptical that I agree on the need for a new system. I'm very skeptical on the ability for government. Oh, I don't deliver... think government can do this, but I do. But that's think... often the first. I mean, we are in Washington. <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing people think of. So, where, where, does who's responsible for delivering it?
1: I think what what will happen with this, as has happened with other movements, is we'll have various cities, various communities, or metropolitan areas, or even states, begin to invent the system, their own system. And then that level of experimentation will lead to some successes and early successes because I think we have so much pent-up demand actually for investment and for minority entrepreneurship that the product cycle, so to speak, is not a 25-year product cycle. We're talking two or three years in which we can see major movement of the dial. Once you get that kind of uptake, I think you're going to have a lot of fast followers. So, systems get created by early movers, maybe delusional, you know, but passion-driven, right? Fast followers. And then it just becomes a routine. And if you don't do it, I mean, you just somehow manage not to get the memo. But I I, I really think that this is a system, a bottom-up system of nation building that the US is
0: essentially recreating. I love that. And I I think of this as much the way that venture capitalists look for a big exit as a sign that Either we're a legit firm or in in a community like Indianapolis, for example, when Exact Target, a local startup had a multi-billion dollar acquisition by Salesforce, that put Indy on the map in a different way, right? So I, I think of this effort in the same way that you need some big exits, so to speak, from places. You need some places to post a major win that surprises the market and gets everybody then scrambling for that next emerging market these are domestic emerging markets, right? We're used to thinking about the foreign emerging market as something that investors should be savvy about. And I'm I'm really convicted. I started convicted on this and I've become more so over the last two years that unless we get people who don't care personally about a given place to act as if they do because they see some real self interest that aligns with the interest of the community, it's not going to work at scale. There's just no way around that. There's no way to rely on goodwill and philanthropic motivation and people going above and beyond. We have to get this to a place where the system reinforces the right kind of behavior and that communities are empowered to guide that in. We clearly don't have that now, but I don't think we're going to get it until we see some of those, again, those early community
1: efforts. Absolutely. And I think what we have in the US is there is a sense and of, a, of a particular subset to admire the problem. Okay. We have now figured out the 95th way to describe racial and ethnic disparities on income, health, and wealth. I think we now need to embrace solutions because the solutions are out there. They are bubbling up everywhere around the country. I mean, it's stunning how much is happening that potentially, if brought to scale with local capital primarily, could provide these new norms and models. And so, it's an odd country in that regard, in the sense that we spend so much of our time diagnosing and very little bit of our time in a collective way, in an integrated way, in a structured strategic way. Really, let's, okay, let's spread the solution. And the hard part is we're not doing this with the national government anymore, because that was the old model. That was the old theory of change. Started in East New York and then go up to the feds and they'll blow it across the country. Or we did that under Clinton with public housing transformation. This is a different system. This is a horizontal spreading of innovation. Again, it comes back to philanthropy. It comes back to patient money being put
0: to task to build this new infrastructure. I want to talk about gentrification yeah. a little bit. This is something that anytime we talk about community change and even correcting some of these historic legacies that are so obvious in many communities, the natural reflex, particularly if you've lived through generations of those types of harmful policies and efforts is, is to be very suspicious and very skeptical. And gentrification is a term that is so nebulous that I, I find it's almost unhelpful to use as a as a point of debate. But let's define it for this conversation as an influx of new residents and wealth that leads to displacement. Because I think ultimately what people usually mean when they talk about gentrification is the fear of displacement. Number one, how much of a concern in the communities that you go to, is that the primary concern or, or should it be the primary concern based on the local economic conditions you're seeing? And two, what does one do about that? Because obviously, the, the status quo is bad. And I think one of the other things we're good at doing is underpricing how bad the status quo is oh. and overpricing the, the risk of change. And that clearly comes into play with the conversation about gentrification. But what do we do about that so that we can harness the good and, and the momentum without reinforcing a lot of that deep cynicism and skepticism about gentrification and displacement.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think gentrification is a very helpful way of describing what's going on in the bulk of America today. I mean, you've done work on this. Myron Orfield's done work of this out of the University of Minnesota. You know, the real issue is displacement. I think generally speaking if you want to build wealth, we need to have value appreciation in property and businesses, particularly in those parts of our communities that have been you know segregated from access to quality capital for so long. So Unless we want to basically just have a permanent kind of system of underperforming communities and people who really don't have the ability to grow their own assets. So gentrification is not a very helpful way of describing what our goal is. And displacement, frankly, doesn't exist in you know, 99% of the places that have been designated as these zones. And you have economic displacement, you also have cultural displacement, which is different. That's when the neighborhood is beginning to change its demographic composition. I think what, again, so much of this conversation comes back to trust and the residue of fear, which is validated by decades of communities being told, we're going to do A, B, and C, and this will be the result. And then, for whatever reason, the plan was never either implemented, or the plan was implemented in a way that had distorting effects, or whatever. So there's a lot of very personal aggrievement here, which is totally understood. So I think the way we need to sort of get beyond this is a have a consensus on reality again, a facts, evidence-driven, you know, sense of which places are really subject to market dynamics, which. A, appreciate value, but B, really have, could have the effect of displacement. It's a relatively small number of places, particularly those that have been chosen by zones. And B, are there different mechanisms to grow the number and scale of minority-owned businesses, to grow the participation of community residents in the real economy so that they can raise incomes and begin to see a path forward, and then to have mechanisms as value is created so it could be captured and ultimately deployed by the community as a whole. This is the neighborhood trust model. If a lot of your starting proposition for neighborhood regeneration are land that's owned by the government or land that's owned by churches, this should not be a hard conversation. The Europeans and many of the Asian countries have been doing this for decades. Public asset corporations that ultimately a portion of the value is reinvested back in that community. You know, we hold ourselves out as the apex of of capitalism, but we haven't used a lot of the tools that have been used by either the Northern Europeans, Singapore, or elsewhere. If it's a privately held asset corporation, like Shift Capital is in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, there are other mechanisms to create this neighborhood trust that ultimately acts on behalf of the community. Let's start thinking here. Let's not have an idea virus invented in a few high-flying metros infect the whole country and ultimately suppress our ability to build wealth and suppress our ability to bring people into the economic mainstream. So, at the end of the day, what we're dealing with in some respects here is the nationalization of ideas and concepts, which when they're positive can really be quite helpful. But gentrification and the overemphasis on it has had an effect of suppressing
0: intelligent behavior. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those issues where it is a reality it's a reality you have to grapple with. But when you over-apply that, you've brought the wrong tool to the, to the wrong emergency. Jason Segetti, Oh uh, yeah, who, from Akron. Yeah, we're both big fans of, uh, Urban Planner and Akron, has written really eloquently about this. And I, I use his work as my response to a lot of these questions because gentrification is often used as the end of a conversation rather than the beginning of Absolutely. how to nuance this stuff. And Jason does a great job describing how in cities like Akron, concerns over gentrification are imports they're not local products. And it, it's often antithetical to the very things those communities need. For example, I think it's fascinating in Akron, what they're really in need of is market rate housing, because they need a middle class to move back in and, and grow to rebuild a tax base, to repopulate a city. And that, that has spinoff effects for everybody that are positive that you simply can't achieve through affordable housing development alone, for example. And so that misapplication of those large coastal metro concerns is, I think...
1: Well, we need to get a grip test, essentially. Right all over the US because we you know we have these sort of common common language that has no relevance to a lot of these places. And then we need to create these new structural mechanisms so that we actually can achieve what we want. We want families. We want communities
0: right. to grow wealth.
1: That's what we want.
0: Right. We could have a whole other conversation about the side effects of cities that have tried to put the brakes on growth and uh, you look at San Francisco and the what happens when you stop building and you make it impossible to build new housing stock and people still want to live there and you have the predictable effects. I think a lot of the concern about displacement, ironically, is driven by places that are doing the most to prevent new capacity to absorb more people. And so, people feel like they're the casualty of a development boom when it's really quite the opposite, that they're living in some of the most housing-restricted and and growth-restricted areas in the country. I
1: do think the housing issue is a product of us nationalizing it post Great Depression. Fannie, Freddie, I mean, you know, FHA. The notion that you look to your national government in a country this large yeah. with so many variants of market conditions to solve a housing problem when the housing problem is so much related to land use and zoning and a whole bunch of other things is absurd. And that's not how the rest of the world works. They've localized housing and therefore market housing is delivered because they do the math differently than we do. And so I think the US is an intensely parochial place. I think if we want to solve our housing problems in a multiple multitude of places, you ain't gonna find the solution here. You're gonna find it
0: in Hamburg. The exit question I wanted to ask was, and you're leading us right to it, is you spend a lot of time thinking about and studying international examples of citywide success and that leveraging of public wealth, public assets. There are some fascinating international examples not all of which can be applied here. And I'm always a little suspicious of saying, well, it works in Denmark, so just import that model. Because there are path dependencies that make us in some ways fundamentally different. But what are the best examples internationally that can and should be applied? What are the lessons that you're seeing that you'd be excited to see applied here?
1: I have spent an enormous amount of time looking at this public asset corporation model in Northern Europe and in Asia. Because there's a different understanding of the role in which publicly owned assets, land and buildings, usually in the cores of our metropolitan areas, which we basically left for dead for decades. Now they're coming back and that creates the potential to use land and buildings that are owned by the government or some segment of the government in a strategic long-term disposition strategy that ultimately generates revenues that can be plied back in to either that district or the city as a whole. So Copenhagen was flat on its back 30 years ago at 18% unemployment, it was fiscally bankrupt. And it decided to build a subway system without a kroner of investment from the public. What it did is it took all the land that owned along the harbor and between the airport and the downtown, put it into one public asset corporation, told that corporation, hey, you've got to catalyze the regeneration of the core of our city and then use a portion of the value appreciation to service the debt on a subway system. So the city comes back, the private investors do quite well, the developers do quite well, but a portion of the value every year goes to service the debt on an infrastructure system. In the US, what do we do? We privatize the wealth primarily off of land that was owned by the public sector or in deals that were primarily subsidized by the public sector. So they have a different perspective of public-private partnerships. We think public-private partnerships are a deal. They think it's a system. And they think the system ultimately has to be a constant generating mechanism for revenues to go back for public benefit. Now, in Copenhagen, that's around a transit system. In Hamburg, that's around the energy transition, you know, the move towards no carbon. And EVs and all the rest of it. In Singapore, it's different. In Tokyo, it's different. But we got to get out. I mean, we're living in a land which has had practices that have been underway for really the past 75 years that really don't get us what we want in a system that still thinks the feds will come in. And therefore, we can have all these bad practices at the local level. And then ultimately, we'll be saved by a big dollop of federal investment. So I think these international models cannot be replicated here, but they can be adapted to an American system. And cities actually around, because of opportunity zones, are beginning to understand that the ownership of assets is not just their tax system and not just land use and zoning, but the actual ownership of assets could be really the vehicle for long-term transformative reinvestment in their communities. So. We'll say, I don't expect everyone to get on the same page. I expect, like everything else, one place to do it, a couple other folks to watch and say, hey, that's really smart. Let's bring it to our city. And then ultimately for it to become a routine.
0: Now, that first part of the episode was recorded before the COVID 19 pandemic. So I wanted to catch up with Bruce more recently to discuss how the crisis has affected his thinking about the future of cities and what he's been doing to help policymakers think through the best ways to support vulnerable small businesses in the midst of this crisis. So I bring you part two now of that more recent conversation. Uh, So Bruce, thanks for giving me uh, another bite at the apple in in conversation with you. I I wanted to uh, start by uh, bringing us up to the present here. Our our first conversation happened uh, prior to COVID-19, prior to the economic crisis. And now we're more than four months into the crisis. How has the pandemic and the economic shock changed your thinking on the future of cities? And in particular, the future of ones like the areas of the world that we talked about last time that were early in a local renaissance just as the crisis hit?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me again. I would say, first and foremost, I would say that what this crisis has reinforced is the role of cities as problem solvers. Uh, when the crisis hit, both the public side as well as the economic contraction side, cities uh, scrambled uh, to essentially ensure that they had uh, the public health systems in place uh, to respond to the pandemic. But also, they were the first movers, including Erie, on and Birmingham, Alabama, and other places that had really shown so bright, shown so brightly during the opportunity zone the sort of evolution. The cities moved very fast to set up local relief funds uh, that were fit to purpose and enabled a whole series of small businesses to basically survive the first several months of the crisis. This was before the Paycheck Protection Program, before other SBA and congressional action. So I think the, the crisis has basically validated this notion that cities, because their networks Um, A public, private, civic, university, community, and others are more nimble in many respects to adapt to crises. Um, In terms of their ability to move forward, uh, you know, we're we're still going through this uncertain period of when are we really going to have a reopening of the economy? Um, You know, I've been very worried about what is essentially a small business-led recession then having a domino effect on commercial real estate, having an effect on uh, the incomes and wherewithal of people who've been put out of work, it it requires cities so much to marshal and harness their energies to be intentional and purposeful about the way back. So what I see happening around the country is cities at all levels, small, mid-tier, large cities, are beginning to organize for the kind of counter-cyclical federal investments that hopefully come around innovation, infrastructure, human capital. So when those funds flow as they did in 2009 with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, they are able to take full advantage of them in ways that build on their distinctive competitive assets and their priorities. So I think it's too early to say one way or the other, You know, cities are in, cities are out, what I'm focusing on is really leadership, and networks, and the
0: ability to plan and execute. How would you rate the response so far federally uh, to the challenge? And what are the biggest gaps that you're concerned about? You mentioned the small business-led uh, recession. I I share that concern, but how would you rate it overall?
1: Well, I think I think the federal response has been abysmal. Uh, I think this was a moment where the national government needed to use almost wartime powers uh, to uh, marshal all of our assets, to deal with the public health crisis, to deal with the lack of inventory. I mean, the notion that the United States is searching around for ventilators and masks and tests, and we're still doing this months after the first shock, is outrageous. Um, The U.S. has basically been pushed off its you know, fulcrum, really, um, as, as sort of, quote, unquote, the leader you know, uh, of the free world. I mean, we've been shown to have so many cracks in our system, our Federalist, our Federal Republic, but the national government has failed on the public health crisis. With regard to the congressional action, on the small business side, they did uh, act with alacrity but they tended to act like the national government generally does with a sort of a one-size-fits-all solution and an overbroad definition of small business. So, you know, any business with less than 500 employees is considered a small business in the United States, which is really absurd and sort of passes the laugh test on the street. Um, And therefore, what happened because of the reliance on one distribution channel initially at conventional banks it failed to reach many of the very small businesses, you know, particularly in the hospitality and, you know, restaurant sectors that were hit so hard by the shutdown. And it absolutely failed to hit and help a lot of black and brown owned businesses that tend to be underbanked um, and didn't have the kind of relationships to garner access to the federal relief. So from the very beginning, what we were saying was, Cities are setting up local relief funds. States are setting up local relief funds. Uh, Why don't we top those up? Because that allows for broader distribution channels, broader sets of intermediaries that actually touch these Main Street businesses, um, actually provide the kind of business support and alternative lending or other investments that they need. Um, That's ultimately made its way into a Relief for Main Street Act co-sponsored by Senator Booker and Senator Danes, and and hopefully that kind of expansion of the small business action can take hold. I think they did the right thing on unemployment insurance. Uh, We'll see if they extend it. The the other question is, will they provide relief to cities, counties, and states that have lost substantial tax revenue? If they don't, we're going to have a round of public layoffs, which will be detrimental to the long-term recovery of the economy
0: say more about the booker dane's bill what what exactly would it do
1: so the booker dane's bill would provide 50 billion dollars in direct assistance to cities counties and states that could then top up emergency funds that were set up immediately after uh, the crisis hit and this is even before again the congress acted with the paycheck protection program or with the economic injury disaster loan program out of the sba these funds uh, were undercapitalized and have been fundamentally oversubscribed. So w- when we um, helped Center Booker and Dane's office set up this particular piece of legislation, we were very careful to try to size the challenge, looking at what an initial set of funds already understood to be overwhelming demand. They opened up a local relief fund on a Monday. By Wednesday, they would be just flooded with applications. And by Friday, they literally would be out of money. So the demand out there is is dramatic. But as many local officials have said to me and local business people have said to me, um, it's much better to stabilize small businesses now than to deal with the aftermath of widespread collapse, either from the small business perspective itself or for the effect on commercial real estate, or for the effect on the civic confidence of the communities in which these businesses operate. So uh, we felt that the Booker Danes bill, by sending direct assistance to city, counties, and states, um, along, or a good portion of it, along with community development block grant formula, although this would be administered by Treasury, was the right way to essentially leverage all the, the networks and the energies and expertise of not just municipal governments, but of philanthropies, of business chambers, of alternative financial institutions, of quasi-public corporations, of public authorities. Let's have it all in response in small business. That's what the Booker Danes
0: bill would allow. It's really interesting. Uh, I want to pivot to one other aspect of what we've experienced as a country over the last four months, which is a real moment of reckoning about racial inequity and uh, and its expressions in different parts of American life. Uh, so obviously, it, what touched off that reckoning was an issue of criminal justice and policing. But what it's helped to draw attention to is other forms of inequity, including economic inequality uh, between, particularly between. Uh, white and black Americans, and, uh, and to a lesser extent, the inequality between white and black communities. And I can't help but think about, uh, and I want to talk to you about, the, the idea that one of the drivers of that uh, is a very intentional uh, use of zoning and land use regulation to prohibit, to, to segregate the country, to, to, to reinforce segregation, residential segregation and economic segregation that has a strong racial component. And so I, I I always am skeptical that these moments will lead to profound change because the, unfortunately they often don't. Uh, but do you think this is a moment uh, if we're being optimistic that we really can come to terms with, with the amount of harm that's done through the use of zoning and land use regs that, that prevent adequate housing supply from being built, that prevent uh, neighborhoods from integrating, that prevent uh, people from being mobile and having access to areas of high opportunity? Is, is this something that's on your mind now as, as you look at the moment that we're going through as a country?
1: It's very much on my mind, and I'm working in a whole bunch of cities to try to promote a kind of inclusive growth or equitable growth agenda going forward so that we just don't go, quote, unquote, back to the economy we had. That economy is not working for large numbers of people, particularly black Americans, right? I think this crisis, first and foremost, has had a disparate impact on frontline workers who disproportionately are, are black and brown. I mean, we can't forget that. They, they have been the essential workers during this period, uh, many of them putting their lives and the lives of their families at risk. Um, what this crisis also has shown um, is a level of structural deficiency and a legacy of institutional racism in the financial sector. Again, I mean, when, you know, the Congress created the PPP, and then basically had a one-size-fits-all product run through one kind of financial institution, what they clearly did not consider is that many, a black-owned business in particular, are very small, um, very young, and don't have these kinds of uh, banking relationships, or that friendly banker to go to. Um, and they can't really rely on friends and families for, quote-unquote, their first raise as they start their business, because there has long been longstanding racism in the financial sector. And segregation, as you have brought up, has had attacks with it. I mean, we've essentially, you know, developed our cities and metropolitan areas with these sharp racial lines which have essentially depressed home values on the black side of the line, uh, which has essentially uh, undermined the ability of black families to build wealth through home ownership, which is the American way and the American dream, and then has hindered their ability to start and scale businesses because so many people use their home equity to invest in small business. So this is a... And when you you step back and you read The Color of Law, which is a phenomenal book from several years ago, um, and you go back to the history of redlining in the United States and zoning and racial segregation, it, it, it all makes logical sense in how it has developed. But this pernicious effect that has occurred, and obviously even going further back in our nation's history, we've never really dealt with the original sin of the United States. And we we are dealing with the long term ramifications of this. Tens and tens of millions of people who basically have not been able to develop the kind of assets that so many others have enjoyed. So I'm hopeful, as always. You know, we've had other moments in our history, but I'm hopeful that this moment, particularly at the local level, where these issues are so raw uh, and and so close that. That, that we can put in place, not just a series of strategies, but a whole new system to basically repair the damage that has been done, but also begin to provide avenues uh, for people to realize their full potential.
0: Do you sense any kind of groundswell among the local leaders you talked to or any kind of growing recognition uh, of the role that restrictive zoning and land use have played in perpetuating that kind of inequality? I think a lot of systems are actually being revisited right
1: now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's only the zoning piece. Um, there's been an enormous amount of focus recently on anchor procurement and supplier diversity. You know, so you have anchor institutions, companies, financial institutions, universities, hospitals, utilities, many of them regulated, many of them receiving either direct or indirect government support. And when they do their spend around goods and services, most of it is exported outside the cities where they're located um, and are not um, really, you know, primed to sort of grow and scale Black-owned businesses or help regenerate portions of the community. Um, I see an enormous focus on capital now and the forms of financial products. Um, that we have in the U.S., which are principally for growing these kind of mainstream businesses focused on debt rather than equity investments. So I, I would say it's system after system is coming under close scrutiny. Uh, the question then becomes across multiple cities, because the great thing about cities is they They all move in different directions with regard to problem solving, and then the best innovations tend to be codified and then scaled and replicated. So I'm sure there'll be a city out there that will sort of focus on zoning and land use from multiple perspectives, and there'll be other cities that focus on procurement and other cities that focus on capital and on and on and on. But we have a structural problem in the U.S., you know, and... You know, we tend to be a very transactional oriented culture. We're not great at systems change. We don't plan for long periods of time. <laughs> We're not like the Northern Europeans. You know, we don't have 10-year plans. Our our view of planning is lunch. So I think we've got some dramatic transformation to make, and it goes back deep in our history. and. I mean, the zoning is 100 years old in terms of how it's played out. Redlining, you know, in the modern era, really started in the 30s. So, we're dealing with some structural deficiencies that are 190, 75 years old uh, that now need to be rooted out, lock, stock, and barrel.
0: Hmm. Uh, you mentioned capital. Um, so, I, I, I will close on uh, a quick update on your thoughts on Opportunity Zones as a, as a tool that can help address some of those capital deficiencies and spur as we talked about last time a new type of thinking about uh, the needs and assets of communities uh, that have traditionally been underserved by uh, the financial system by investors by even state and local governments who have who have not uh, been proactive in deploying publicly owned resources and assets uh, on behalf of of those communities how is the crisis Uh, impacted your view of Opportunity Zones, uh, both the progress of the market and its place as a tool in the community development infrastructure. How how optimistic are you that this is a policy that can be put to use in response to the crisis uh, as these communities uh, struggle to rebound uh, in its wake?
1: Well, I think Opportunity Zones were quite helpful uh, in focusing on low-income communities and their market potential. By designating these communities, a quarter of the ones that were eligible as Opportunity Zones, they they really unveiled for city after city um, how weak market investment and how fragile economic activity was. So from the first scoping perspective, Opportunity Zones basically unveiled some of these structural deficiencies that we talked about with the the racial disparities in our country. What Opportunity Zones also brought to the table was a different kind of capital. Yes, it was tax advantage, but it was really focused on equity investment as part of a capital stack that might include debt and might include concessionary capital, might include other public incentives, um, the disposition of publicly owned land, for example. So whether it was around real estate or residential or commercial real estate, or even small business, what Opportunity Zones did was shake up an old system that principally relied on sort of policy-driven tax subsidy or conventional Community Reinvestment Act debt as the only vehicles to make deals work, so to speak, in many of our low-income communities. I think going forward, um, what we're going to find is that the aftermath of this crisis is going to leave many parts of our communities with that were not really functioning at full, you know, at full speed before. It's going to leave them with even greater numbers of underutilized properties, shuttered businesses, um, and and a lack of local-owned business that really comes from the community and serves the community. And so I think what we're going to need is a much larger toolkit going forward, uh, almost like a large neighborhood transformation initiative that takes hold in the U.S., of which I think opportunity zones could be a very important part because it's bringing equity investment from a different set of investors to the table. But I think the, the depth of the economic downturn, the loss of black-owned, fragile black-owned businesses and brown-owned businesses, I think is going to compel a much bigger, uh, more substantial response on both the demand side coming from these corporations, eds, meds, governments um, that need to spend more local and more to help grow black and brown-owned businesses, and then on the supply side, both with capital and with businesses themselves. So I, I think what Opportunity Zones was like a first wave of a rethink um, about the market viability of low-income communities uh, and the market potential and the different ways in which capital could be brought to bear to regenerate communities and also grow Black-owned businesses at scale. And now we should put those lessons to task with a much broader Multi-layered, uh, multi-sector uh, initiative uh, as we move
0: forward. So it sounds like you remain somewhat optimistic.
1: <laughs> I was taught by my former boss Henry Cisneros always to try to be optimistic, so we could keep uh, we could keep iterating our um, our solutions, and um, you know, not not fall to despair. I mean, this is a very hard moment for this country. Uh, both the, the COVID crisis itself and then what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's death um, and and really the coming to fruition of these very deep, deep, longstanding racial disparities on income, health and wealth. There's a lot to despair about, but I think what does set, apart set Americans apart is some kind of either genetic defect <laughs> that's optimistic at its core or or ability to think, you know, about a brighter future. So I'm trying to sort of keep that mindset going as, as, as we're in month six or whatever of this crisis.
0: Well, Bruce, you've been very kind to come back for a second conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, let's do it again soon. Thanks a lot, John. Really appreciate it. And that will do it for this episode of The Deep Dive. Thanks again to Bruce Katz. Until next time, be well. And thanks again for listening.